Acts chapter 22, and uh, beginning to read at verse 1. Hear the Word of God. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. When they heard that he spoke to them in Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into the prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we respond to it, that our hearts would have a, a holy delight in our privilege of being witnesses, testifying, testifying to your grace. I pray that you would give us the boldness you gave to the apostles and disciples on the day of Pentecost, and Father, that it would be our great privilege to, be, to testify to your sovereign grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. First Timothy chapter 1. Paul says that his conversion is a pattern for all believers. And you can see just one little section uh, from that um, uh, paragraph there. He said that even though he was a chief of sinners, he was uh, in unbelief, when God converted him, he did so as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. And uh, not everybody's going to be converted like Paul was. Some people... Never know a not time when they were not regenerated, did not love the Lord. They've grown up within a covenant home. But we can all have uh, a similar testimony to Paul in the basics of the gospel. And uh, we're going to be uh, looking at that. Paul said that it was sovereign grace that opened his eyes. It was sovereign grace gave him faith to receive the gospel. It was sovereign grace that enabled him to be God-centered. And he said he wants his testimony to be the pattern for everyone else's testimony. And I think this passage in Acts chapter 22 is a wonderful uh, description of Paul's testifying to sovereign grace. We're going to look at three points only. We're going to see that Paul tries to establish common ground. Then we're going to look at uh, Paul confronting sin, but he does so humbly. And then we're going to be looking at him uh, elevating uh, and magnifying God's grace. First point, establish common ground. when you realize how different sovereign grace is from any other human conception, you might think that this is just an optional point here, that uh, we ought to be able to just, you know, dump the gospel message offensively, tell people that they're heading to hell and let God pick up the pieces. And uh, sometimes uh, this does happen and God can still work through that. It's amazing how God works through the 
most foolish of testimonies. Uh, I had shared with you, uh, you know, maybe a couple years back about this guy who was a little bit of a, a simple guy, really wanted to testify uh, to the Lord, be a witness. And this was in the uh, largest Southern Baptist church in Atlanta. And he finally gets his courage up, takes tracks, and he's going to this businessman to hand him a track and says, do you want to go to heaven? And he says, no. And he said, well, go to hell then. <laughs> and uh, he was so discouraged, he realized that's ah, not the proper thing to say, that he just wanted to give up. But this businessman all day long had that phrase going through his head. Well, go to hell then. Go to hell then. Go to hell. And he said, I'm probably going to hell. And so he read his tract, and in the back he saw the address of the church. He went there, told the pastor afterwards what had happened. And the pastor uh, gave the testimony, and this young guy heard it and was so encouraged that even his lousy testimony, you know, God used that to bring people to salvation. But there is an ideal that we should work towards, and Paul gives uh, that ideal. Uh, Paul sought to establish some common ground. And in this passage here, we see that Paul was looking for social and historical and mental and emotional and religious keys to get him a hearing. He was trying to get a hearing for his message. If only people will listen to me, uh, God's going to have some elect there, you know, he's hoping, that will respond to this message. And the first part of getting that hearing was to be polite. He says, brethren and fathers. Let me tell you something. If you've just been roughed up, like Paul was roughed up by that crowd, those are probably not the first words to come off your lips. In fact, with some of you, it's probably not repeatable what would come off your lips. Um, this is not natural for, the, for a human person, but Paul has matured so much over the last uh, few years uh, since he was converted, and he was kind of a rough dude himself, but here he starts off polite, and he continues polite uh, throughout uh, the passage. And to me, this is an astonishing thing because when you get roughed up like that, for males especially, this kick of adrenaline brings either fight or flight. And again, I'm not saying that God can't use flight or fight. In fact, uh, one of the biographies that I just love is um, about a lumberjack up in northern Minnesota who was a tough old buzzard, and he became converted, and God called him to minister to lumberjacks. This was in the late 1800s, and he went from camp to camp, and some of the tough situations he got himself into is just a really fun story. But this guy wasn't exactly the most polite of guys. Uh, he won the respect of people by beating, beating them up. <laughs> Sometimes he'd take two or three people on. But the point was, he won their respect because of his courage. And I think Paul was doing the same thing. This was courage on Paul's part uh, to politely address this group. But anyway, if you've got to choose between fighting or being polite, if you've got a choice, and sometimes you don't, being polite is probably going to get a little bit better hearing. The second thing that Paul did was to ask for a hearing. Now again, this may seem a little strange because Paul could have just assumed these guys don't want to hear what I'm, I have about to say. You know, they, they've been trying to kill me, and why even bother talking to them? But he doesn't do that. He does not assume they don't want to hear. Instead, what he does is uh, he tries. He asks for a hearing. Now, psychologically, this puts the crowd into a position where they're much more likely to listen. Um, no one likes to be thought of as unreasonable, and this gracious appeal to something, that innate sense of decency uh, that is there, uh, actually works. They listened. He said, 
Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Now the word defense is the Greek word apologia, from which we get apologetics. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, when he's describing how we ought to engage in apologetics, he says your lifestyle and your demeanor is a big part of defending the faith. If your lifestyle does not line up with your message in some way, you're probably not going to get a, a good hearing. But especially these first two points, being polite and being always ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within you is something that, that Peter emphasizes there. And so the worst they can do is kill you, right? Uh, but uh, anyway, here he's uh, figuring he's in the hands of the Romans. They're going to protect him. It doesn't hurt to give an apologetic. And to me, this shows a presence of mind. He's willing to try. He's at least willing to try. Too many times we think, oh, they're not going to listen to me. I'm not going to even say anything because they don't want to hear. Well, how do you know unless you actually try? He is willing to try. Third thing that Paul does was to speak the language of the people that he's ministering to. And if you look at the previous chapter and verse 37, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? That's the first point of politeness, right? May I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? And he's uh, kind of amazed that Paul is speaking, even willing to speak in his language, because the, the Jews in Jerusalem, they would not even give these guys the time of day. But Paul is addressing him in the language that he's comfortable with. Now take a look at chapter 22, verse 2, where he instantly switches when he's addressing the Hebrews. And it's that switch in languages that I want to look at. When they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And then he said, and he starts off on, on his speech. So when he's speaking to the Gentiles, uh, to the commander, uh, he's actually speaking uh, a, a, a certain kind of a Greek. One commentator said it's a, it's a, a more sophisticated Greek in verse 39 that he addresses to the commander that uh, would be understood by well-educated people and by, by, you know, officers like this. But when he's talking to the Hebrews, he's talking to them in their own language. And uh, to me, this is something that is uh, very, very interesting. Uh, he's trying to get common ground. This is a tip I think we need to follow. We need to know our crowd when we are addressing them. Now, let me try to give some applications that maybe are a little bit broader than just apologetics, there are some people who believe that we ought not to use literal translations like the New American Standard, the um, New King James, ESV. Those are all great translations as far as being literal. And they say we ought not to use those because there are too many theological terms and unbelievers are not going to be able to understand those terms. And they say the same thing uh, about preaching. We need to uh, have the scriptures at about a fifth grade level for both grammar and for uh, vocabulary. And in our preaching, just in case an unbeliever comes in, we need to make sure that the preaching is uh, understandable by all. We just get rid of all, uh, all buzzwords. And there is an element of truth there, but it's only half of the uh, question uh, the equation of knowing your crowd. Evangelistic preaching to unbelievers is totally, totally different than in-house discipleship preaching uh, to believers. Uh, they're different crowds. Noel Weeks, in an article on biblical language, he does an analysis of what kind of language do people use, and he points out what, that when the apostles preached to the church, 
they used theological buzzwords that no unbeliever would have understood. Uh, it was not part of the Koine language. And the point is, the Scriptures want us to adjust our speech to the group that we are in. Let me illustrate. If you're an apprentice uh, to a plumber, or you got an apprentice and you are a plumber, it's not going to work very well if you ask, hey, bring over that thingamajiggy that, you know, kind of you wrap around a pipe and you do this and that and it's this color. You know, that's not going to get you very far. You need to know the terms of the trade. Well, how do you describe these tools? Otherwise, they're going to get really frustrated with you. And the same is true of any, any groups that you're a part of, whether you're, you're a, you know, a mechanic or you're uh, working on a, as a nurse on an operating room or something like that. I mean, just think of the operating room. Uh, I think it would be a disaster in the making if uh, the surgeon's got his hands in your chest, you know, and he's saying, no, no, not that one. It's, uh, it's one over. No, not, not that one. The second biggest hook, you know, the one with the red dot on it. I mean, <laughs> that would be a disaster, right? We use technical terms to speed up our conversation. And every subgroup has those technical lingo that they have. It doesn't matter how uneducated they are. They're going to have lingo that they're used to using within their, their group. And uh, I'm presently talking with uh, uh, a couple of philosophers and uh, trying to witness to them about the gospel. And my speech with them would be incredibly cumbersome if I did not use some of their technical jargon because sometimes one word uh, summarizes an entire paragraph. And it would just become incredibly difficult to communicate if I was not willing to take up uh, the jargon that they have. And the same is true of the church. God wants Christians to use the language of theology and the language of praxis. That's our actual practice. And um, it's true, we need to define those terms. We need to define what does justification mean and sanctification and glorification. There's other technical terms in the Bible that we need to uh, define. But there's always going to be a learning curve initially for a person who's coming out of paganism and into the church. But if I never train you in those terms, and I only use the terms that I use with unbelievers, then this church will be the poorer for it. I shouldn't have to, every time I use the word Pelagianism, give a big paragraph description of what I'm talking about, or it really slows down the conversation, right? Uh, so there's nothing wrong with a church having a different culture and a different language uh, than the world does. A scripture assumes that that's the way it's going to be. Paul looked a little bit weird, for example, when he was with the Romans in his Jewish garments and his shaved head. And so if you're being faithful to the calling God has called you uh, into, you're never going to 100% look the same as other people, and they're not going to think anything of that. They're not going to think that's, that's a weird uh, thing. Once they're converted, you're going to... We do need as much as possible try to speak the language of the world. I think that's the point we're getting at here. Once they're converted, you're going to have to teach them the language of Scripture. Now, the fourth thing that Paul does is to identify with the Jews culturally. Paul says, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. He's in effect saying hey, I lived a couple blocks down the road here for a number of years. You know, I went to Central High School. I, uh, I'm a Jew. I'm one of you guys. He's trying to identify with these people. Scott has a friend that um, uh, apparently has a great ministry to bikers. 
and he looks the part, you know, the way he dresses and his leathers and stuff and his gorgeous bike. Whoa, I would love to have his bike, but uh, we're not supposed to covet, are we? I need to repent of that. But um, he's very effective, and he is trying to speak the language and look the part of the group that he's ministering to. Why? Because he's called to minister to that group. So he's trying to do what, what Paul is doing here. But in verse 3, he also identifies with a common hero. Paul says that he had been taught by Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was the most famous of all of the Jewish rabbis in that time. Actually, to this day, he's the most famous of all of the Jewish uh, rabbis. And it would be sort of like the testimony that Ralph Drollinger gave when he was the executive director of uh, Sports Outreach America. Here's a guy who's trying to set up chaplains and trying to get these sports teams to let evangelists come in and evangelize the people. Why in the world would they let him do that? What kind of a connection could there be? Well, it was a huge connection because this uh, seven-foot-two uh, guy was the first player in NCAA history to make it to the Final Four tournament four uh, years in a row. He was a member of two national championship teams. He played on uh, uh, with legendary coach uh, John Wooden. And so there's a lot of things that instantly make a connection with people. Now, later on, he, he, now he's the executive director of um, uh, Capital Ministries, and he's got evangelistic ministries to uh, politicians all over the states. So now he has to dress differently. He's got to talk differently. Uh, but back to the other thing, basically, instead of saying, yeah, I studied under Gamaliel, all he has to do is say, oh, yeah, I played under Coach uh, John Wooden, and instantly he's got a connection with people, okay? And we've got to think, what kinds of connections like this culturally and emotionally can we make uh, with unbelievers? Okay, um, he, next, point F, shows that he identified with their zeal for the law, how he could understand their animosity toward him. Because he said, hey, I was once very zealous for the same laws you're promoting here. I w once had the same animosity for a Christian. I can understand exactly where you're coming from. This does look strange. I can understand it. <clears throat> he says, uh, taught according to the strictness of our Father's law and was zealous toward God as you all are today. He doesn't instantly dive into what they are doing wrong. He's trying to connect with them and at least say, okay, you guys are sincere. I'll hand you that. You're very zealous. I'll hand you that. And I point all of this out because it's very easy to go to extremes on the subject of making common ground with unbelievers. One extreme is to say, who cares? You know, I'm not, I don't even care. No, we should care about making common ground. The other extreme is to be so focused on ministering to one subgroup or one subculture that we alienate other subgroups and other cultures. And Paul had a balance on this. He, he realized uh, he couldn't do that. He didn't so immerse himself in just one culture that he couldn't minister, you know, almost uh, the next minute to a totally different culture. He was first and foremost identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, but then as much as he was able, he tried to identify with all of the different people who were out there. Okay, that's the first point. Second main lesson that I learned from this passage is that we need to confront sin if we are to faithfully preach the good news. Uh, if there is no bad news of the law, the good news does not make any sense. It doesn't have any relevance to people. Now, he's going to be speaking a little bit more later on about their sinfulness. I just want to focus on verses 4 through 5 
And it's interesting the way he does it because he's painting himself as the sinner, right? But he's doing it in a way where he's identifying with them in their sin. He's brilliantly exposing their sin without being insulting. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Now, to admit that you're a persecutor is not very flattering to yourself. Uh, That's a bad word. But what have they just been doing? They've been persecuting him. They've been persecuting this way. But he's pointing out, okay, I've done just exactly the same things that you have done. And then he admits that uh, he was guilty of murder, persecuting to the death. And so he's taking his own sin very, very seriously. But what has the crowd just tried to do? They've just tried to kill him, right? Uh, Then binding men and women, delivering them to prison, yet another sin against the Savior that he admits to. And so what Paul is doing, is, yes, he's pointing out sin. He's got one finger that's pointing out there, but he's got three fingers pointing back. He's identifying with their sins in part so that they don't lose hope, that they too can be saved from their sins. In part, it's to show that we're not rejecting sinners. We welcome sinners into Christianity. In fact, Christians are Sinners saved by grace. And so it's not just any confrontation of sin. It's a humble confrontation of sin that he is giving there. Verse 5, he shows that he too had followed the lead of the Sanhedrin. Many of those leaders had perhaps even stirred up this crowd. He said, hey, I've been authorized by those leaders to do the same. As also the high priests bear me witness in all the counsel of the elders. In other words, you can check this out for yourself. I'm not making this up. Just talk to them. Do they not authorize me to do the same kind of persecution? Continuing in verse 5, From whom I also received letters to the brethren, went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. And so Paul is saying, Look, I'm not ignorant. I was a part of the in crowd that's doing all of these things. I know exactly what's going on. And I'm telling you that what they are saying is wrong. Uh, He too had totally misunderstood Jesus. And so Paul is establishing a basis for calling them out of their sin and taking away any argument that they might have that he doesn't know what he's talking about. He was part of the encircle. And in the process, he brilliantly leaves everyone without excuse as rebels against the same God who had converted him. Which brings us to the third main aspect of Paul's testimony, that it magnified the grace of God. It magnified the grace of God. It's clear Paul had been totally captured by God's grace. Let's begin looking at verse 6. Now it happened, as they journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. Now what we see here is that Paul is not seeking God. In fact, he's running the opposite direction. He's doing everything he can to exterminate the name of Christ. It's God who was seeking Paul. And that's what sovereign grace is all about. It is monergistic. Okay, That's one of the terms we ought to learn in, in the Christian faith. Monergistic is made up of two Greek words, monos, which means uh, only one, and ergos, which means to work. So only one is working. It was only God at work in his salvation. Paul wasn't doing anything. He didn't contribute a thing to his salvation uh, at this point here. It started from heaven, God seeking man. It did not start from earth, man seeking God. Okay, so it's sovereign grace. 
And I believe that that is the only gospel that fully glorifies and magnifies the grace of God. All other gospels leave a little bit of glory for man in the recipe. A second thing that we see about the sovereign grace is that it humbles the pride of man. Pride hates sovereign grace. Always has, always will. It doesn't like the idea of predestination. It just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't like the idea of unconditional election and regeneration. And God gives me even the gift of faith. There's nothing that I can take credit for. It doesn't like that. But true gospel of Jesus Christ is grace alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And I think that God's humbling work is so perfectly illustrated in what happens in verse 7. And I fell to the ground. That's the goal of God's grace. It's to humble man. And it's only when we are humbled in the dust that we can be lifted up. It's, it's, it's really only uh, when we realize that we are sinful rebels in need of God's mercy that His joy can replace uh, our terror. Sovereign grace always humbles man. And I don't think we ever need to be afraid of speaking sovereign grace to unbelievers. I've had um, some Reformed pastors who have seem to believe that you know, predestination is an in-house secret and we need to make sure we keep it a secret. One pastor actually told me that. He said, oh yeah, this is just for the comfort of believers, but don't tell any unbelievers about that. Well, you look at the evangelism in the Old Testament. You look at the evangelism that Jesus engaged in, Paul engaged in. They're always talking about predestination and uh, unconditional election and, and regeneration. It's sovereign grace that they are preaching. Why? Because this is what humbles the pride of man and enables him to be prepared to hear the good news uh, from from the Lord. It's a very, very powerful tool. Now, of course, you need to be realizing if they're not elect, they're going to probably string you up and beat you. <laughs> you know, so be prepared for that. Better yet, have some Roman guards to protect you like Paul did, you know, when you give this to unbelievers. Okay, the third way that we see God's grace being magnified is that sovereign grace is not just a general call of the gospel that leaves me as an individual some way to hide. It does not do that. God gets in our face. He deals with us individually. He sticks His fingers, you know, into our, into our sins and our messy lives. And when you're sitting in front of the preaching, it's almost as if God's talking directly to me, right? And uh, you've probably all experienced that at some time or another. God's speaking into my life. Well, that's what's going on here. Verse 7, And heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, no hiding here. God's got His name. He's got His number. And um, when you come face to face with God's sovereign grace like that, there's only two things you can do. Actually, there's only one thing you can do. I was going to say you could rebel, but you can't even do that. The only thing you can do is give an unconditional surrender. And that's what conversion is all about. It's an unconditional surrender. Point D, sovereign grace always gives a Christ-centered view of sin, not a self-esteem perspective. In verse 7, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want you to notice that Jesus is not a psychologist coming to make Saul feel a little bit more comfortable in his misery. It's not primarily about Saul. It's not even primarily about Saul's salvation, his comfort, his hope, or any of those things. Sure, that's a part of the, the message of the gospel. But first and foremost, he is confronting Saul about his rebellion against God. This is not Robert Schuller's new gospel of the nice news. This was bad news indeed. All of a sudden, Saul realizes, I'm persecuting the God who created this universe, who's holding me and could drop me into hell at any time. I'm persecuting him. This is bad news indeed. And again, like Scott prayed earlier, uh, until 
we come to the place where we say, against you, you only have I sinned, we're really not struck by God's sovereign grace the way that we need to be, uh, to be prepared. A pagan's heart, when he comes, he's regenerate, he is suddenly filled with such, uh, a, a, such a, a sense of God's majestic holiness and God's wrath that he realizes the only place that he can flee is to the cross. No other substitutes look like they're going to be a shelter from the time of storm. Only the cross will be such a shelter. Men must hear the bad news that God is offended by our sins before the good news make any sense. And when we turn the gospel into a psychological message of self-help and peace and hope and confidence and fulfillment, what we've done is we've made it a man-centered message rather than a Christ-centered one. All sin is rebellion against Christ. Now, certainly sin hurts us, and if we embrace the gospel, it's going to help us, right? It's going to make us more comfortable, right? But that's not the primary message. We've got to be ever so careful that we do not turn it into a man-centered message. And the message, first and foremost, from Jesus' lips was, repent and believe the God. Why repent? Because you've offended a holy God. That's why we must repent. By the way, how is it that Jesus can say that Paul was persecuting him? Paul hadn't even seen Jesus. Well, the, the answer, of course, is that Jesus is so united to his people that what happens to you literally happens to him. That's why we, Paul says we are filling up the sufferings of Christ. He continues to identify with us in his sufferings. That's how close he is to, 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 to his people. Fifth, this confrontation was totally unexpected by Paul. Verse 8 says, so I answered, who are you, Lord? Paul doesn't have a clue what's happening. He doesn't even know who he's talking to. This is not a case of man seeking after God. This is a case of God seeking after man. I mean, he's running full tilt away. He knocks him off the horse, turns him 180 degrees around. And so this is talking here about, about sovereign grace, not semi-Pelagian grace, right? This is sovereign grace, or Augustinian grace, you could call it. Now, I want you to notice the name that Jesus gives to himself. Verse 8. He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, let me tell you something. In Jerusalem, the name Jesus had become quite politically incorrect. <laughs> Just like in the military today, uh, you are not supposed to be using praying in the name of Jesus. You know, that might offend a Muslim or somebody else like that, but it was not very politically correct. But he makes it even less politically correct by adding the phrase of Nazareth. You see... Galilee was the most despised of the states of Israel. And within Galilee, you could not get more despised town than Nazareth. That's why Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Uh, his answer was obviously no. And yet Jesus came out of that. I think what Jesus is doing here is he is deliberately taking upon himself the very, the very uh, slams that the pagans brought against him. Oh, that's Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, don't even listen to him. What good could come out of Nazareth? He's using that very term that's supposed to elicit shame when he's bringing the gospel to people. Until we come to the place where we are not ashamed of Christ, we have not come to the place where we've truly entered into the kingdom. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Are you ashamed of Christ or anything in the Bible? The degree of our faith 
I think, is commensurate with the degree to which we're more ashamed of shaming Christ than we are ashamed of shaming the world. Okay? That's kind of a measure of where our faith is at. Well, Paul's not ashamed of Christ or of Christ's words. There isn't anything in the Bible that he's ashamed of, and neither should we be when we witness. Uh, Your temptation might be to think, "Ah, they're not going to like what I say. They're not going to care about what I say. It doesn't matter. Who's the one that changes their hearts? Not you. You just be faithful with your message. It doesn't matter how weak or how profound, how wonderful it is. It's sovereign grace that changes hearts. And you can just relax, witness to the best of your ability. It doesn't matter how poor that ability is. God can take that, punch into their hearts, and draw their hearts out in love to Him. Okay. Um, Verse 9 is symbolic of the fact that sovereign grace saves whomever God wants. Selects some, leaves others in their sin. Those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. God made sure that Paul heard, but Paul was the only one who heard. The others saw enough light so that they were without excuse, but they did not hear the message. And I think this is a symbol. Again, 1 Timothy 1 talks about it being a pattern for all. Uh, uh, It's a symbol of the fact God picks only one out of that group. Now, some people immediately bristle and they say, that is not fair. That is not fair. But here's how Paul answers in Romans 9. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. That's sovereign grace. Whom he wills. See, God's free will is the ultimate free will. You know, we always are trying to defend our free will. Let's defend God's free will a little bit. When we turn the gospel into a right, We have made it a man-centered gospel. When we say God must save, we've turned it into a man-centered gospel rather than sovereign mercy. Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism is thoroughly man-centered. Pelagianism believes that man can perfect himself. Semi-Pelagianism says, no, we need God's grace, but we still got to cooperate and there's got to be some of us uh, mixed in there, but both really are heresies. Now, what's the only response Paul can give to the true gospel? This is really not too subtle uh, here with this crowd, um, but he's calling the hated Jesus, my Lord, Lord. It says in verse 10, What shall I do, Lord? God's grace brings total surrender on the part of Paul. Total surrender. What shall I do, Lord? Now, those are the words that automatically come in the hearts of every person the moment he is regenerated. Instead of fighting, they say, what shall I do, Lord? And from that moment on, those words should be on the lips. They're not always on our lips, but they should be on our lips every morning when we get up from the rest of our lives. What shall I do, Lord? I want to please you this day. You're my Lord, and I give you everything in here. Take it. Use it. I I want to be yours. What shall I do, Lord? Point I, sovereign grace is lordship grace. Not only does Paul call him Lord, but more importantly, in verse 10, God instantly makes demands upon the subject that he has conquered. Verse 10 continues, And the Lord said to me, Arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Paul's no longer his own. 
Okay? He is a subject who is under orders of the king of this universe. Look at the words there again. Arise. Go. You will be told. Appointed for you. Do. Okay? He's under orders. And keep in mind, Paul said his conversion story is the pattern, the word pattern is used of him, for all those who would believe. There are some people who want to separate Christ as Savior from Christ as Lord. And they say, well, I've received Christ as Savior, but I haven't really received Him as Lord. Um, and uh, if you want to get rewards, you know, you see, receive Him as Lord. If you just want to get salvation, you receive Him as Savior. You can't divide Jesus as Lord and Savior. He is who He is, and He is Lord and uh, Savior. And um, uh, so it's a self-serving, man-centered, unbiblical view of salvation uh, and uh, Matthew 121 uh, puts the lie to it. The angel tells Joseph, She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, the carnal Christian theory is as ridiculous as a rich man telling a poor man, Be warm and be filled, but not giving him anything to be warm and filled with. It's as ridiculous as telling a slave, You're free, but not taking him out of the slave owner's hands. Okay, it's as ridiculous as a person who's sinking in the bog up to his neck and he says, well, cheer up, buddy, you're going to go to heaven. Okay, that's not the way Christ does it. He wants to save us from Satan, from the world, from sin. He wants us to give us joy and victory in our Christian life. And so he empowers the Christian to now be a joyful servant, son, daughter, soldier, farmer, ambassador for the kingdom. Spiro Zodiades tells the true story of a missionary who was speaking in India um, back in the 1800s, I think it was. Uh, and he spoke to a number of Hindu women there, was preaching the gospel, and all of a sudden, one of the women gets up and leaves. And uh, I, I think it was just a couple minutes later, she came back, and he stops and he asks her, uh, just curious why you were leaving. And here's what she said. She said... Um, I was so interested in the wonderful things you are saying that I went to ask your servant if you live like you teach. He said, you do. So I came back to hear more about Jesus. I thought, wow. She's wanting to see if this really works. <laughs> Is this a credible message? And if you've been saved unto lordship, it doesn't matter how far you've grown. You can have all kinds of sins and all kinds of issues. But if you've been saved unto lordship, and they can see that there is a seriousness about sin, but a recognition, not a hypocrisy. I have sin in my life, and I'm saved by grace. If they can see you're saved under lordship, but you're honest about your sins, you're going to have a credible testimony. Point J, sovereign grace does what it pleases with the subjects that are now saved. We should not make promises. Trust Jesus, and everything's going to be okay. okay? That's a man-centered message, and it's going to let people down when things don't go okay. Because Christians have troubles too. Uh, verse 11 describes the first of a long series of sufferings that God sovereignly brings into Paul's life. Since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those here who were with me, I came into Damascus. Now, according to chapter 9, Paul was blind for three days before Ananias comes along and, and heals him. God struck him blind. Now, that seems so different from the fluffy, happy, clappy kind of message you sometimes get on the TV that Rodney Chestnut wrote a spoof, and I, I want to read that to you. He said this, 
The host, immaculately dressed, hair perfect, is all smiles. Today is a special day for the Christian Health and Wealth Show. Uh, we're going to have a very special guest. Uh, he has done more for the cause of Christ than any other man. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome St. Paul the Apostle. All eyes follow him as he walks slowly across the set. It's a real thrill to have you on the show, Paul. Or should I call you Saint or Apostle? Which do you prefer? Just Paul is fine. Very well, Paul. We're all eager to hear what you, a great servant of the Lord, might have to say to us. Tell us. Uh, tell us about the wonderful things that happened to you when you invited the Lord Jesus into your life. Well, let's see. First, I was struck blind. Got over that, but then somebody tried to kill me. Had to escape in a basket. Then they stoned me, threw me in jail, beat me with rods. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> I think you misunderstood. Tell us what the Lord has done for you. Well, that's what I was doing. Then the Romans arrested me. I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I spent in the deep. Uh, excuse us, folks. It's time for our first commercial break. <laughs> now, Rodney Chestnut's point is that we must not present an unrealistic message about what is going to happen to Christians or it's false advertising, right? It's false advertising. God is not only sovereign in salvation and who gets saved, He's sovereign over what happens in our lives for the rest of our lives. Now, Romans 8.28 guarantees it's all going to work together for our good, but He's not saying it's all going to work together for our comfort, right? And uh, we can't count on His fulfilling our every whim. Which leads us to subpoint K. Present salvation as a fact, not a feeling. Paul believed the message of God and was saved, whether he felt like it or not, whether he was healed immediately or not, whether he felt fulfilled or not. Paul was saved simply because he believed the promise of a God who cannot lie. He believed that the Scripture said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he was saved out of sin and into the kingdom. And if you have not put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, I would urge you to do so today. You might say, well, I don't know if I'm elect. Uh, maybe God will not receive me. If you come to Him, it is guaranteed that you are elect. In John chapter 6, uh, He says this, No one can come to Me unless the Father who has sent Me draws him. That's sovereign grace. No one can come. But then he goes on to say, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And so you can have absolute assurance. If you come to the Savior and say, Lord, I want to be saved, He will save you. He will never cast you out. So I would urge you, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Cast your sins upon Him. Receive His righteousness for you. The last thing I want to mention is skipping ahead beyond next week's uh, passage to verse 22, and that is be prepared for some people to reject your message. Now, we don't know how many believed from this crowd, if any did believe. We, we're not really told, but we know the crowd as a whole did not believe. Verse 22, they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He is not fit to live. See, the moment he showed his willingness to uh, work with Gentiles, in verse 21, all of a sudden, all of this pent-up frustration with the abuse that they had received from the Gentiles came upon them, and their anger flared up, and they weren't listening to anything else that Paul had to say. And when you give your testimony, there's going to be all kinds of things that are going to keep people from listening to that message. It may be anger, or it may be apathy. 
that'll keep them from listening. It may be poverty, it may be riches, but any of the things that keep people from listening are no match for the sovereign grace of God that can reach into a heart and bring people to salvation. And so, uh, like Paul, the apostle, who said, hey, I was the chief of sinners. I was running away from God as much as any person had run away from God. And God saved me. He can save you as well. And we can be confident when we are witnessing, whether you're witnessing to your friends, your neighbors, um, you know, even a stranger on an airplane, that your witnessing is not wasted. You can be confident of that. No matter how foolish, oh, I did a terrible job. Your witnessing is not wasted because Paul promises in 1 Corinthians 15, your labors in the Lord are not in vain. So I'd encourage you, witness. What a thrill it'll be when we get to heaven and we realize, wow, I was involved in that person's salvation. See, not all of us are going to get the harvest. Some of us plant, some of us water, some people are going to be the reapers. It doesn't matter. But realize your witness is not in vain. So be willing to do so. May we grow in our skill at testifying to God's grace. And God really expects the sheep to produce sheep, right? It's the sheep who produce lambs. And uh, he does so by sovereign grace. So if we imitate Paul, we're going to seek common ground. We're going to confront sin. We're going to magnify God's grace. And it's my prayer that God will produce a mighty harvest. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, your word. It does give us encouragement that our labors in witnessing are not in vain. Help us to be bold and faithful and to love sharing about the neat things that you have done in our lives. Uh, Give us a, a real zeal and a hope. Uh, and uh, give each one of us opportunity at some point in our lives to lead someone to a saving knowledge of you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.